Hi, everyone. Welcome to Divinity Connecting the Dots. I'm your host, Nivi Jaswal. We're talking about veganism and politics today. And my guest is Parsha Saha. I'm going to add her to the screen, an empirical political scientist from Harvard University, who is probably the only one in her field globally studying animals, food systems, and politics in a way that's evidence-based and with a bold and courageous spirit of scientific inquiry. Sparsha, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me and thank you so much for that wonderful introduction. Well, um, the pleasure is all mine. Let's get right into it. Tell us about your vegan journey. Oh man, my vegan journey was slow. It took, it had a bit of a, I think, gap in it. Um, I, the earliest memories I have are, you know, being a young person, a young girl, running around singing. It's all I was doing was singing. Um, but but I knew then um, that non-human animals, non-human beings um, were very vulnerable. And whenever I would see a cat outside, and this was in Iran, uh, this was also in the UK. When So uh, I was in Iran from when I was uh, born to when I was two and then moved to the UK for, and we were there for 10 years. Uh, and we journeyed a lot back and forth. We went to India a lot too as well when I was young. And I would see animals and I would I would just start crying um, as a young girl. And I think it was because I somehow always knew how vulnerable they are. And coming from an Iranian background, you know, lamb is so it is very big in, in the food culture there. Uh, and I and I wonder to what extent um, there is a, um, a, a, a history of, of colonialism and, and neocolonialism that established that food system there. But Iranians think it's very Iranian uh, to eat a lot of lamb. And so I grew up eating, eating meat, eating, uh, eating animals. And it really took for me a rupture in my family situation, a, a personal moment uh, where other things were breaking down for me. And I needed to think about who I was outside of the things um, that I had known that all my entire life. Um, so this was my family structure, um, everything. And so that that kind of was taken away from me. And I, I had to sit down and think really deeply about what was important to me. And in that process, I went back in time uh, and I and I slowly and, and over the course of a year and a half, I, I, I started by cutting out uh, red meat because I that that to me in, in that stage of my veganism, my baby veganism. Oh, I was thinking, well, cows and pigs, they're so smart. They're so wonderful. I can't eat them. So they, they, I stopped eating that first. I was eating chicken and then I learned about chickens <laughs> and what horrors they go through. And then I thought, no, I can't eat. I can't I can't be a part of this anymore. So I stopped eating um, chicken and then and then dairy and then eggs went out of the window and then fish went out of the window. So it took it took a long time. And there was a big punctuated break between, I would say, my mental veganism as a child right. and then my practice of veganism as an adult yeah and and you know oftentimes when people talk about um having these realizations as um you know when they're young as as children obviously they're you know there's um adult authority around us yes and um it makes us probably feel less empowered to make that practical step and, and to really own our choices. Yeah. How I'm curious to know how old were you when you first realized that, you know, this feeling and this core mm. change um, that you mentioned. Mm, the core change. Yeah. So this was I I actually had a vegetarian period when I was between I think I was around 23. So I was a vegetarian for about a year and a half. Um, and at the time, I was um, still living with my family partially because I was in grad school. So I would go home mm -hmm. sometimes. And um, it was a real sh shock for my for my parents, for my, mo my mom in particular. My dad is Indian. And so he had been raised vegetarian. So I don't think it was completely foreign to him. But my mom said to me, how are we going to relate to you anymore? <laughs> and... Um, and so I, I, I said, don't worry, you know, whatever you make, I'll eat the gravy. I just won't eat the, 
So I, I was making these exceptions, you know, because I, I just wanted, I wanted them to know that I, it, it, you, they can still relate to me. The things that she makes still, still are important to me. But I think that's kind of at the, the, the base of, of many, of many families that kind of food, uh, food culture um, in, in their relationships. Um, but then I, I stopped being vegetarian and I started, uh, I finished, I was wrapped, I wrapped up grad school. I went to LA where I was lecturing at the School of International Relations on war, on international law, all of those things. Um, and that's really when I started shifting my attention to identity in politics. So I started to, to study gender. Yeah. Um, and, and the interesting thing about gender in politics is that we take theories from psychology and from sociology and then we apply them to gender-related phenomena. So uh, this could be anything like vo voters thinking about women candidates or women voters voting. Um, but a lot of it borrows from political psychology. And so I started to also learn about cognitive and social psychology. Right. Um, and that's that actually helped my journey because by the time I moved back to Massachusetts and I had had a big personal rupture in my life when I moved back, um, I think I was also a, a critical enough thinker. I think yeah. I had gained enough information um, that when I started, to, I read Carol Adams uh, and then I was, you know, reading, uh, that was probably the most formative book for me was reading Carol Adams. I would sure. say I was really ready to accept that there had been a veil that was over my eyes that was meaning that I was not living in line with my values from when I was a child, when I knew, I knew back then. Right. Yeah. And, and thank you so much for sharing so intimately, you know, about all of this, because on the show, when we bring guests and they talk about um, their most personal experiences, um, how they've navigated familial, social, mm -hmm. academic, professional situations, and finally, um, you know, realize that there is no other way except to lead our lives in alignment with our um, innermost values. Uh, those yeah. stories make a big difference. So, so you could be, you know, uh, changing and transforming somebody's uh, life, uh, you mm -hmm. know, and, uh, uh, if, if they were to hear. Uh, yeah. um, so please tell us a little bit about your academic journey and what led you to do a PhD? Hmm. The answer to this question is that, in a way, um, I, I wasn't being thoughtful at all. Uh, the PhD program that I, I got into was an accident um, on my part. So I uh, had intended to go to law school the entire time I was in undergrad. I was thinking, okay, I'm going to go to law school, and then and then I'm going to go to the UN, or I'm going to go, you know, do something like that. And um, I, uh, so, so this, this was the whole plan. And, and I knew when I would take the law exam, the LSAT yeah. and I was home for a summer and, and my dad actually was asking me, okay, so you're law school law and you know, that, that's what you want to do. And I was like, yeah, you know, there's this PhD thing I could do. I have to take a test. And he said, take the test, take, take it. And so I sat there and our, and our list, well, I might as well, like I'm planning to go to law school. Why not just take this exam? spent a month studying very poorly for it. Um, I think I was having a very good day when I went in to take, actually take the exam um, because I, I got uh, the highest score. I, you know, I'd taken a few practice and I was like, okay, this is pretty good. And then I took the test and it was kind of unbelievable what happened. So I, I couldn't really believe that my score was so good. And I think partly because it was so good, I got lazy. And I didn't want to study for the LSAT. Studying for the LSAT is, I had been blocking out four months of my life. I was going to study for a whole year and, and really study for four months. Um, and I just, I kind of viewed it as my ticket out. Hmm. Like that, that's my ticket. I'm going to get, I'm going to get to the next institution after Berkeley. Again, just not thinking about what, who I was and what I wanted to do. I was just thinking about, okay, well, I know how to study and my parents, you know, know me as a good, as a good studier and they like it. So I'm going to keep studying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and so I, 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 that it kind of just happened by accident. I didn't end up taking the LSAT. Yeah. Um, and I applied to grad schools. I got very lucky. I got into an, a, a number of them 
ended up picking Harvard truthfully because of the name. Uh, there was a, there was a moment where I was going to go uh, to um, I believe it was UC I think it was UCLA um, or UC San Diego, mm-hmm. um, and they had an open house, and I, I was going to go, and I was very interested in some of the people who were working there. And um, essentially, I was I was sort of told by family, like, you're not even going to that. You're you're what are you doing? You got into Harvard. You're going you're going to Harvard. <laughs> right. And I, just, I was a baby. I, I just said, oh, OK, sure. That, that's what I'll do. Yeah. Um, and so that that's really in a way. I mean, I, I it, it feels like sometimes I want to it feels like it would be nice to have a purpose that was driving you from the very beginning that you knew. There was no purpose that was driving me into the PhD program. Yeah, well, I, I, I guess that, you know, as, as I mentioned right before we started and we did our little meditation as we all, you know, I always Oh, do. yes. Mm-hmm. And it's, 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 it went something like much as we'd like to believe that we choose our projects or our, even our relationships. It's actually <laughs> those projects, those, you know, jobs, those um, careers that are actually choosing us. And, yeah operating through us and um, leading us to our purpose. Um, So please tell us, you've mentioned about it, please um, tell us a little bit about your ancestry and ancestral food ways that Mm. run in your heritage. You mentioned Iran, you mentioned India. Um, What are some of the best or worst of both the worlds um, Mm. that you may have picked up along the way? Yeah. So, I mean, I think when we're talking about food, especially when we're talking about food and in ancient cultures and cultures that have been in civilizations that have been on on this planet for thousands and thousands of years. um, But when we're talking about them today, as you well know, it's very difficult to find it, to figure out what what was actually (laughs) the ancestral food. Um, And so growing up, I thought the ancestral food of Iran was lamb, you know, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I've, so since then I've I've learned that you know that 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 may have been a part of of some of some areas, um, but it, it wasn't lamb 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 all the time, right. as much as I thought. Um, and then you know with Indian food, it's it's interesting. My parents, you know, we 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 lived in Iran and then we moved to the UK. And then we moved to um, the the U.S. And in some ways, when you're moving, when you have that immigrant experience and you're moving from country to country, especially when it was only just our nuclear family. So we didn't have we, we had my, my dad had a, an uncle like three times removed living in the U.K. And he that was our only other family in the U.S. and the U.K. was this one other distantly connected related family so we didn't have anyone else and that was the case for many other Indian and Iranian and Nigerian and Egyptian families and we all kind of lived in the same area and you and you learned from each other so my my mom's cooking was impact I think it became somewhat of a fusion so even when she's making an Indian curry I think she's bringing in some of her other skills Iranian cooking skills into it Uh, But I remember her learning from our Egyptian friend, Auntie Odette. I remember her learning from uh, our uh, next door neighbors who are Pakistani. Uh, So so much of my childhood with food was actually realizing, oh, look, they're learning from each other and they're putting in aspects of of what they've um, what they've learned from each other. Uh, So it was it was always a kind of a, a beautiful fusion, but a lot of meat. Yeah. Yeah. And, and food's such a social glue. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah. There's no fasting even or fasting, feasting, moments of joy, sorrow that human beings, you know, um, find, we found a way to insert food in it. Yeah. And obviously yeah. geopolitics and, and who would know it better than you, you know, has such a great influence in our food systems, the way we grow, cultivate, yeah. believe, and define and call food at this point. And, and you're absolutely right. It's very difficult to um, even, you know, from an evidence-based standpoint, mm-hmm. no matter how hard one digs deep into scholarly work. And even then it depends on the perspectives, you know, through yeah. those um, neo-colonial, post-colonial, colonial stories have been told. Yeah. Um, so one has to really sift through and, and um, oftentimes 
uh, one can't tell, you know, lines blur between what your hunch is, between what your motivation might be. And, you know, uh, uh, the academic training, professional training yeah. received. So it's quite a um, mishmash, you know. Um, but so so let's talk a little bit about um you know your journey as woman of color woman of color researcher political scientist teacher you lecture at harvard and you've lectured in in so many other you know institutions academic you know institutions of repute before and a vegan mm. <laughs> a unicorn so, i hope you're aware of that <laughs> and and having said that um, it's a lonely place to be. It can feel very alone. Yeah. Um, walking those uh, hallways. Yeah. So, and how, how does it feel to be mm -hmm. that person? Mm -hmm. The feelings have varied a lot, I think. I think in this first stage when I was just awakening to it and just starting to include my work in the internal revolution I had had, real seeing so much learning so much and i realized as a political scientist with my work i have a duty to 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 no one else is doing this i have a duty to talk about this to produce research on it to teach about it and so in that in that first stage when i was just starting to kind of make those um connections to my work what i was pitching courses i was trying to do events i think i felt a lot of gratitude for any small little bit of a yes that I would get. And it was very easy for me to discount all the no's. And I was, I was, I had a lot of energy. So even though the hill, you know, I, it was an uphill battle from the beginning, getting things done. I'm, I'm a non-tenure track faculty member too, which adds this whole other level of status and prestige that I don't have. And so, you know, it was, it was an uphill battle, but I had a lot of energy and it was new to me. So I think I, I, I was, feeling, feeling, and it's sad in a way, I was just feeling grateful for, very grateful for very little things that would come my way that I could then turn into something um, that would, that would share information or get information out. Um, so that, that I would say was the first stage. Mm -hmm. And then I, I, um, over time, I just, I was hitting so many barriers um, that I think the main feeling I had was, was anger um, that stemmed from alienation, from not being included, and so this the, this this is difficult in 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 academic circles. It's very difficult in academic circles when you're not included, um, because it means that you don't have as much legitimacy. So much of academic, the academic fields are based on other scholars um, engaging with your work and wanting to hear about your work, and that that wasn't happening for me. And so I was constantly sort of getting, hearing about opportunities or hearing about, you know, this, this talk or that thing that happened or this event. And, you know, I would look and I was never, I, I'm never, I wasn't invited to any of those kind of academic, scholarly, political science um, uh, moments where I could have, where I could share my work, where I could find similarly minded people. Part of this is is I'm studying something that really no other political empirical political scientist is studying, yeah. so that makes it really difficult. And while I have a few champions, um, I would say I I didn't necessarily have that at Harvard, and so it made my day to day kind of very alienating and very like it's just me against this you know it's just me it's just me trying to make everything happen that I wanted to happen. Now, I would say in the last, and Anivi, I think so much of this is learning from you, being influenced by, by you, by your ideas, the way you move in the world. Um, but that has affected me so much that I have a certain peace now when I'm, when I'm kind of moving through the, this world that um, I, I kind of just accept it. And I, I think a little bit that the struggle is actually good because it makes me better. Uh, it makes me a better thinker. It means that I read more. It makes, it means that I double check everything. It means that, you know, I, I, I just, 
I tick off every T and dot every, everything's dotted. Everything has the details in place because I, I know that I'm on the edges. I know that there's a struggle. So I have to be extra good. Um, and I think I, I, I sort of just, you know, I, I had another instance yesterday where I got an email and I wasn't included in something for the one millionth time. And um, it normally it would have ruined my night. <laughs> but I, I, I just, I, I saw it. I was disappointed for a moment. I just accepted it. And then I kind of finished my day and I went and I played with my, with my dog and my husband and we were laughing and making jokes. And I, I realized an hour later, I told him, I was like, you know, something happened that normally might have in the last, you know, just two years ago, I, I it would have ru ruined my, my night. I would have been heartbroken for the, the, the 20th time. Um, and it didn't. Um, because I think I'm, I'm, I'm okay with my little, I'm, I'm meeting people like you. I'm, I'm meeting other academics, activists, people who I think I, I'm realizing, look, these are the people, you are the people that I respect the most, right? Who respect me, who include me. And so you make, I'm making my own, my own center, if that makes sense. Yeah, that, that to makes total sense. And, and thank you so much for your kind words. Yeah very moved and um being alone you know in a corporate world you know myself i can i can share a little bit um you know sometimes you just have to walk those hallways alone and, and you have to be the first person dancing on the dance floor and, and <laughs> sometimes outside of the main you know circles that you yeah. walk and and sleep and talk and and once you start to find those tribes it's such um it's a, it's an act of self-compassion you know mm -hmm. yes to be with people who um, celebrate us and not just tolerate us and you know who are patient with us not because they want us to stop talking but they're patient with us because they're really really invested and emotionally interested to hear what yeah. we have to say and and also because there is a values alignment um you know that has happened so yeah. i i you know, I believe uh, that there is a larger scheme, a larger, mm -hmm. you know, it's the universe's hand at play uh, yeah. that, you know, we we walk with the people uh, who don't agree with us. And we, uh, you know, we walk with the people who do agree with us. Yes. And, and every single one of them has a beautiful lesson and resilience to teach yeah. us. You know, yeah. you're you're obviously learning that, and and I'm so glad to know that you know, twentieth time your sleep wasn't disturbed and you had a great time. <laughs> yes, you're you just keep trying, and whatever the you you accept the universe because it it it's guiding. It's very I, I view it as a very sort of um, it's not controlling, but it yeah. Yeah, it's, it's about flowing, right? And flowing, then October, flowing. when we're talking about this, we're in the season of fall, and it's uh, yes. you know, when even leaves turn into flowers. Yes, right. Yes. Yeah. Um, so mm. there are sprouts and, and beautiful ones, you know, which uh, your amazing work and, and tireless efforts have started to, you know, show. And um, so you've launched an awesome first ever course called Great Food Transformation um, on Food Systems, Animal Rights at Harvard. I'm going to pull up a little bit about that. We made a graphic. Aww. And um, so this is just, you know, an example, a very limited example of all the different, you know, capstones and projects and, you know, ideas that your students have come out with, courtesy your efforts. Um, Sparsha, Tell us a little bit about this course. Mm. Oh, I am so excited for this course um, that's coming up. I, I, I've been teaching a smaller version of it okay. um, that was housed in the writing program for the last three years. Um, and so this course is very much kind of the next stage that, that, that's coming out of these smaller seminar versions. So it's going to be a large lecture course. We'll have uh, 50 students, hopefully even more, depending on kind of how, what we can manage with community partners who are work, who we are, who we are working with. Um, and it, uh, it's the first, it's the first one of its kind at, at Harvard for that's available for undergraduates. So I feel a responsibility yeah. to make this course as excellent as I can. It's, you know, accepting all the, the flaws that will come with it. Uh, but, but I, I, but I feel, I feel a joy in that 
in that sense of responsibility uh, for, for kind of leading the way on, on this issue area that I think will only become, um, it because it will have to, it will only become more and more central um, as we, as, as time passes. And so th this course that will, that I'll be teaching in the spring, it really stems, so it, it covers, it will cover sort of, we'll start by covering the environmental health um, and human and non-human ethical costs of animal agriculture. And so that first part of the course is really to show students that this is an issue area um, that is it's so interdisciplinary, whether it's you're going to the medical school, the public health school, you're you're going to envir environmental science, or you're going to um, to philosophy or ethics or law, it all is part of this issue area. So we'll cover all of those costs in the first part of the course. Then we'll turn our attention to politics. And the main question in politics is, why is this being avoided mm -hmm. so, so blatantly? In the last year or two, I would say we're starting to see little, little ripples in American politics around this. They're very small but it's just starting to emerge. And it's mainly from a health angle yeah. in politics in, in, in the US. It, it varies across countries, but uh, one of the questions I have is, 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 is that health perspective one that may emerge initially as, as kind of a dominant one could, could be the case. So certainly that seems to be happening in the United States. Um, but in that, that second unit of the course will cover policy, food policy. So we know the government, the U.S. government heavily subsidizes meat, dairy, um, which is true across many countries as well. Uh, we'll cover the lack of any environmental regulations. Um, so that's also a political issue as well. So really, it's just showing that politics is a, is a big part of this. And much of politics is actively making the problem worse. So we'll we'll cover all of that. Then, really, the kind of the third unit um, is is about bringing in as many um, community partners as possible to give guest lectures and panels and things like that. Um, and the one, the kind of the innovation of the the course is, and this emerged uh, because I was as I was thinking about this course, I realized I would be getting up there every single week giving a lecture that may be so upsetting to students as we're reach we're hitting we're hitting tipping points that we thought we would hit at plus five degrees Celsius. And the new research is showing that most of these tipping points are gonna actually be hit with the current Paris Agreement. Yeah, at a lower threshold. Already. At 1.6 to plus two, which yeah. is what the Paris Agreement is, is aiming for. Yeah. But we're not even on the Paris Agreement scale. No. We're at the two, we're heading for 2.6 right now with current policies. Yes. And that's even more tipping points. So this this is terrifying. This is scary for students, and I and I knew that the only way I could really do that and not feel not feel terrible, not feel like I was just, you know, not giving them a solution was to uh, partner with Plant Futures Initiative. Yeah. And so they are running uh, a challenge lab that's going to be parallel to the lecture course. And the idea of the challenge lab is to say, hey, students. Whatever you're interested in, whether it's whether you are more business minded or whether you're more activist minded or whether you're more politically minded, here's a community partner, whether it's something like Impossible or uh, Divinity or if it's, uh, you know, a political office, we're going to partner you with them in teams and you're going to help them solve a problem that they're having around plant based solutions. Right. So that that I'm, I that's my that's going to be my favorite part of the course is just seeing hopefully what that the students see um, that they can be part of the solution to this problem. Right, and it is so relevant at this point in time, right? I mean, yeah. when students um, who are also consumers at large, right, they receive a lot of this stimulus mm -hmm. outside of the academic setting. They're not necessarily in a position to empirically or from a research standpoint or from you know a very formal standpoint study what's mm -hmm. happening around them and and that's uh, a big disconnect which uh you know courses like yours are absolutely you know um they're hitting the sweet spot if, if i can say that and offering students a formal platform to engage in food policy or activism or research or anything else, you know, that is just so relevant for them and, and for their generation. I mean, as we speak, 
Florida is underwater, right? Hurricane Ian, and, and it's broken all um, uh, parameters of what you know, uh, human beings have understood about hurricane and hurricane-related weather and disaster in the aftermath. What I hear is there people have alligators and they're discovering snakes, um, you know, as they try to get back into their houses. Um, a third of the country of Pakistan has been underwater and, and that is a calamity of a totally different scale. Um, you know, we are seeing climate refugees um, happening and, and God only knows the epigenetic uh, impact of this on, you know, pregnant expectant mothers at this point in time and what uh, the next generation in, in those countries is going to look like. So courses such as yours are so vital in planting the seeds with young scholars um, who uh, are our future and who have, who will have an interest and in, probably they won't even have an option but to study these things more formally. And, yeah. and I know that in a few minutes we will be joined by two of your most amazing students, Kamel Friedman and Naveen Durbakola, and uh, they're the co-founders of Harvard Plant Futures Initiative. So we'll hear more from Naveen and, and Kamel about this program. Um, now, so it is, you mentioned about this popular belief that talking about animal rights and food systems is bad for political discourse. Mm. Um, you are the only empirical political scientist who's really doing quantitative you know, research and trying to see and run all of those you know, regressions, et cetera, that you know, academics like yourself do. Um, and especially when it comes to elections, right? Mm. You've done uh, important work. Um, we have a few, you know, graphs um, mm -hmm. show, and, and I'm, I'm going to put it on the screen so our viewers can track along with you um, as you explain, uh, you know, your work to us and then mm -hmm. share your findings, Sparsha, on the mm -hmm. screen. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you so much. So th these are two, um, and I'll, I'll talk you through them. They, they might be a bit confusing, um, but these are, I would say, the two main uh, big findings that, that come out of the work um, I did. And, and what I was simply interested in understanding was, um, are, is, is meat, talking about meat, talking about farm animals at the national level, is that vote losing? Because the sense that I was getting was that politicians think it is vote losing to talk about farm animals or to talk about meat and connect it to the environment. So I, I looked, I, I was looking and I realized, wait a minute, there is no empirical political science work that actually rigorously answers that question. So I did it. Uh, the first step for me was actually to apply to a um, uh, what's called TESS. This is time-sharing experiments for the um, for the social sciences, and this allowed me to have a, a probability sample uh, through um, uh, NORC, AmeriSpeak's NORC panel. Yeah. So this for me is the most important part of why this is um, rigorous research. Yeah. It's actually the sample that we're using. It's the gold standard in terms of being able to make, um, to have external validity, to make generalizations outside of the sample. It's the gold standard in research. So I ran two sets of experiments. Um, the graph that was on the right um, is the experiment that relates to the vignette. And in the vignette experiment, so you, you'll, you'll say, the uh, uh, viewers that keep your attention on the right, um, on the right a graph. In the vignette experiments, I presented respondents with, with a hypothetical uh, political candidate who's running for president in America, but at the at the party it, in the primary level. So respondents were basically asked, like, consider uh, this politician, but um, within your party, right? So that's an important kind of aspect. And randomly, respondents saw a control version of a hypothetical stump speech which brought up the regular issue areas like economy, you know, security, all those things that we're used to hearing about in elections. And then randomly, some people saw a hypothetical stump speech that included connecting the environment to meat. Um, and so it, 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 in other words, it put political attention on the environmental costs of meat. Randomly, some people saw a different version of this speech. They saw a paragraph that brought up farm animal rights 
So I consider this a different framing to reduce, to encourage reduction of meat consumption is through talking about farm animal rights. So that was an, a final version. And then I had a fourth version that included a paragraph that compared uh, the, that linked the environment to cars. So this one is an environmental issue area that has mainstream acceptance that has been brought up already uh, in, 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 in presidential campaigns. So it was kind of another control, another check. What I expected was that the farm animal rights speech would perform the worst among voters. I was expecting, and the way I write the article, my hypothesis is farm animal rights, that is going to be the most vote losing thing you could bring up. That's what I thought. <laughs> and that's what I think most people would have predicted. Okay. And then instead, what you can see on that right graph is, and on the x-axis is the average predicted support for this hypothetical politician. And on the y-axis are the different speeches randomly that each respondent saw. And what you can clearly see here is um, that farm animal rights, putting national level political attention on farm animal rights does not lead to any backlash. And this is true for both Republicans and Democrats. This was absolutely shocking to me. I did not expect it. And I think it means we need so much more research about how, whether we can bring in uh, uh, politics, uh, bring in animal rights into politics. The graph on the on the left very quickly shows- Sarcha, yeah. Sarcha, you know, just because uh, I you know you're so used to, you know, <laughs> all of these different things yeah. and, and so on. Um, so I, I just wanna, you know, if there's a one line summary of the graph yeah. right, um, and, and the, the yeah. finding, uh, you know, would I be correct in saying that regardless of political affiliation in U.S. politics, if a politician were to dare to talk about animal rights, they are yeah. not going to receive backlash from the voters. Yeah, that's what this shows. We need more research. So this was the one, this is one set of experiments. So I, I would not feel comfortable saying that for sure until someone independently verified this as well, who was not me, but that's what it shows. And it's a good sample. Okay. All right. Okay. So very quickly, because I see Naveen and Camille also joined us backstage and I'll be bringing them on um, in just a few minutes, but I want to focus on the second graph, which was yes. the second, um, to bring it on screen. Yeah. So, um, and Nivi, thank you so much. I, I, this is the, you know, I, I get into academic mode so quickly that I forget sometimes what the main takeaways are. Um, <laughs> so the one on the one on the left very quickly, essentially uh, this one allowed me to manipulate or change the gender and the race of the hypothetical uh, political candidate. Um, so this, the, the one on the right was just a, a white man politician, but the one on the left, I was able to see how voters would respond to black women, Latino women, black men, Latino men, candidate. And these are again, same setup, hypothetical political candidate running in a presidential primary at the national level was the setup for the one on the right as well. Um, and this time I, 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 manipulated the extent to which they were supportive of animal rights. So high levels of support versus does not support animal rights. I also um, manipulated what kind of pets they had. And one of the options was to, oh, to rescue farm animals. So to me, that shows personal concern for farm animals. And then I also uh, manipulated um, whether they were vegan or not. And so from this, what you see is that democratic voters give a boost to black women and Latina candidates who run for uh, president at the at the national level within their party in the primary. This is this means right that if, if that if you're a woman of color, talking about animal rights uh, may not hurt you. Uh, and also if you're vegan, it doesn't hurt you as well. So this was the big finding there it was really just seeing that that boost uh, that voters give to to wow. candidates of color. Yeah, that that is just Absolutely stunning, you know, in conjunction, um, when you look at both of these findings, you know, one, there's so much food for thought for yeah. other, you know, academic scholars. And I really wish and hope uh, that, you know, other scholars will take this up and, and you know, carry your work forward. Um, uh, Sparsha, we have Naveen and Kamil, you know, with us. I'm going to bring them on screen. Um, so we're connecting the dots on divinity. Uh, we're talking about veganism, animals, um, politics, plant-based future, and I welcome Camille Friedman and uh, Naveen Durbakola, both sophomores at Harvard University. 
uh, Camille, you're studying molecular and cellular biology with a minor in dance. I'm mm -hmm. so curious to learn more about that. And Naveen, you are majoring in nutrition and food policy, and you're both co-founders and co-presidents at Harvard Plant Futures Initiative. Welcome, Naveen and Camille. Thank you so much for having us. Yes, thank you so much. We're so honored to be here. Uh, thank you. I'm, I'm going to start with both of your vegan journeys. And, and I know, you know, each of you have had some uh, really amazing uh, experiences, you know, as you've explored plant-based eating and the ethics of veganism. Camille, we'll quickly start with you. And Naveen, you know, you can, um, uh, you know, share your story right after. Camille. Yeah. So um, about like six, seven years ago, I was having a lot of issues with uh, my digestion and just gastrointestinal problems in general and I went to a lot of different doctors and um, for about a couple of years and none of them could really find out like what was going on or why I was having so much discomfort and pain um, and then I was actually at a dance intensive and um, the food there was not very good it kind of grossed me out like I saw like these powdered eggs and all this deli meat um and so I just decided <laughs> after watching a few um documentaries on veganism and how um it is better for the environment and how it connects to some of my values from like a moral and ethical standpoint um I just decided like overnight to try going vegan um and I felt so much better. Like my digestive issues improved so much wow. and I had more energy and I felt like finally, like I wasn't in so much pain all the time. Um, and that was about five years ago and I haven't looked back. Um, it's been an amazing part of like my life. And I am very grateful that I have found a solution um, and have since been learning more about the environmental sustainability implications and social justice implications of um, food systems. So um, just very excited about the future for plant-based, yeah. Right, Camille, thank you so much for sharing your story, Naveen. Yeah, so I started off um, being a vegetarian for my whole life. I grew up in a community where um, we were kind of always taught uh, not to harm animals. So I think that I was very fortunate to be surrounded by those ideals. But for me, it was difficult um, for such a long time to justify why I needed to make that transition to become vegan if I was already vegetarian. Um, but actually in 2014, I had a run-in with an autoimmune disorder which basically caused me to experience a lot of uh, neurological symptoms that weren't being addressed by the medications I was taking. So um, what I did was basically look at the dietary triggers associated with the disease. And then I decided to go gluten-free and see if that made an impact. And it really had a transformative impact on my life. Um, and that really since then had caused me to uh, analyze the foods I was eating and the effects that they were having on my body um, and piqued my interest in nutrition side of things. Um, and I'd always been very interested in environmental activism um, in the intersection of environmental health uh, and planet, uh, planetary health and human health. So um, kind of veganism seemed like the real link between the two. So yeah. about two and a half years ago during COVID, I decided to make the switch. That is just awesome. You know, both of you have had, you've been touched personally at a, from a health standpoint. Um, you're actively choosing to shape your academic career and, and you know, your professional uh, future ahead and, and, and connecting, uh, you know, ideas and ideals of public health, planetary health and, and doing, you know, active research. Um, you know, so Camille, tell us a little bit about your experience in running, um, you know, the Plant Futures Initiative as, as one of the co-founders along with Naveen. Yeah, um, I've been super grateful to be collaborating with Naveen and Sparsha on running this club. Like they're both amazing um, and bring so like it's amazing to have so many people who are passionate about these issues. Um, it's been exciting to see how much um, enthusiasm there is for plant based. Um, I think once you find the people who are interested and curious in plant-based food systems, it's uh, automatically builds a great community. Um, we actually recently just attended 
um, VegFest Boston, and it was a super great event. Like a dozen or so people came and everyone was having a great time. And even on the bus there, people were just like having conversations about veganism and ethical implications. And I thought that was really cool. So it's very gratifying to see how we can bring people together over these issues. And um, yeah, I'm just super excited for our plans for the year and what's ahead. Right. And and Naveen, um, you uh, are leading so many different diverse initiatives at Harvard. So um, you lead the Food Waste Reduction Project for the university. Uh, you're the co-founder of the Plant Powered Youth Steering Committee. You serve on the Federal Plant-Based School Food Advocacy Coalition. Oh my goodness! And then you've been to the White House conference that's uh, you know on hunger and nutrition and health. And uh, tell us everything that you can about first of all your experience at the White House and and also your engagement across all of these different diverse initiatives. Sure. Well, first of all, I just wanted to echo exactly what Camille said in that I've, I'm so grateful to have both Camille and Sparsha on my side and supporting us every step of the way. And this journey really would not be possible without them. Um, so actually, yeah, this past week, um, I was invited to the White House Conference on Hunger, Nutrition and Health, which is basically the first of its kind in about 53 years or so that mm -hmm. focuses on ending hunger in the United States. So it's very long overdue. Um, and they were trying to kind of get people from various vantage points to speak and discuss on um, the issues of hunger, nutrition and health. Um, and one of the things that I had mentioned in my previous work through the Plant Powered Youth Steering Committee, which is basically a group of students across various high schools and colleges who are passionate about plant-based, um, is that we need to have more youth representation on issues surrounding food. Yeah. And specifically that youth need to be included in the policymaking process because a lot of the policies um, and meal programs uh, and various uh, interventions that the government employs largely affect youth populations. Um, so without having their voices represented, then you're not getting um, policies that are representative of those people. So I think that was a big thing. Um, and uh, the Biden-Harris administration was listening to these sorts of um, messages and uh, they heard what we had to say. Um, so um, they wanted to invite us and see um, what we could contribute to the discussion. So I was very honored to um, be part of that. Um, and um, alongside that, I've been able to work um, at Harvard more institutionally on bringing plant-based towards our dining halls um, and towards our community. So uh, the Food Waste Reduction Project is uh, a part of the Office for Sustainability, and we are working on reducing the emissions um, that come out of food at Harvard. So um, one of the goals that we've committed to is reducing emissions by 25% by 2030. Um, and we are actually on track to set those goals um, and be, largely because um, the dining halls are slowly making a transition to being more plant forward and plant-based. Um, and on top of that, um, we're really focused on just kind of building a community at Harvard that is um, supportive of plant-based and wants to see plant-based succeed. And that's where Plant Futures comes in and what the work Camille mentioned and the work that we are continuing to do is so important and we're really grateful and honored to be part of it. Right. And in a minute, you know, I'm going to invite uh, Sparsha as well and, and the both of you also to talk specifically about the Plant Futures Initiative and the Harvard chapter, the vision, the goals, the objectives you have and some of the work you may have already you know, done as part of that initiative. Uh, but I'm going to go over to Camille and um, tell, tell us, tell our viewers about your experience attending and presenting at the Radcliffe workshop on the future of food systems. Yeah, um, thank you. So, um over the summer, actually it was in September, but um, we had the Radcliffe workshop on future food systems, which was bringing together people from uh, across like all different fields. Um, there were doctors, um, politicians, uh, um, people, um, many of the co-founders from the Plant Futures Initiative came as well um, to talk about how we can like accelerate the plant-based transition at Harvard and this was an amazing opportunity to just brainstorm and really focus on this issue and uh, have time to learn from so many other people uh, about their ideas for um, making this possible. And um, I was really fortunate to have um, been asked by Sparsha and Max Bazerman and um, Samantha Derrick to 
work on a survey um, to kind of gauge the interest in plant-based um, at Harvard, both in terms of like opportunities uh, with courses and pro research projects and um, speaker events and kind of like programming. And in, in addition to um, the plant-based options within our dining halls. And so I surveyed over 200 people um, and found that a lot of people support um, increasing plant-based options in the dining halls, as well as like getting more courses and um, like academic opportunities focused around these issues. So that was, those were really encouraging results. Um, we want to do more extensive surveying um, in the future to kind of verify them and uh, make the samples more representative, but it's exciting to see that there are a lot of people who are also thinking about um, plant-based. Yeah, exciting times, you know, and, and I was just mentioning with Sparsha before you guys came on that it's so important for us to survey um, our youth and to understand how is it that they're, you know, feeling outside of the academic setting. And since veganism is, um, is, is something that, you know, younger people in this country are more likely to choose veganism for a variety of different, you know, reasons like environmental health and um, glo global climate change, um, you know, animal rights and, and ethics versus some of the older persons, you know, who are probably more motivated um, from a health standpoint. Um, so, you know, the, the question that I have for both of you, Kamel and Naveen, is as you see the interest in a plant forward future grow on campus, um, you know, what are some of the specific, you know, ways in which the Harvard uh, Plant Futures Initiative or other initiatives that you guys are individually or together part of how are you in, you know, creating enrollment? Um, I, I bet that, you know, when you look at the student body, you'll see a reflection of what's some of the norms and some of the values that are very deeply and closely held by people in favor of animal-based eating. So share with our viewers, you know, maybe some um, anecdotes around, uh, you know, difficult conversations you may have had, some struggles, some challenges that you guys experienced and overall how you're enrolling students. Um, to come over to the plant side. Yeah, sure. So um, to all the points you brought up, it's it's definitely true. It's very tough to um, kind of create this community amongst a lot of people who have eaten animal-based diets their entire lives and making a transition, especially in a new environment, can be very daunting. But I think that one of the really key parts of our mission is creating a community um, because the retention rate of um, people who um, choose to become vegan, maybe for like a week or two weeks or um, just to see what it's like, um, the people that actually stick it out are those that have a community that support them and encourage them. So I think our biggest goal with Plant Futures at Harvard is really just to create that um, foundation for students um, and to kind of guide them in that process to offer um, nutritional advice through our speakers, to um, offer uh, personalized advice from students who have gone through the process. A lot of our students that we've been speaking with have even made this transition pretty recently since mm -hmm. coming to college. So they understand how it works when you're in the dining halls and you have to use what's available to you and you can't make your own food. So I think that that's something that's what we're really trying to tackle. Um, and the other point, like one of the big difficulties we run into for sure is um, kind of bridging the gap between the older and younger generations and mm -hmm. seeing what people are most interested in and what is most compelling to people for reasons to switch. And I think with the younger generation, especially students at the college, we see that over 80% of students are super supportive of more climate friendly policies at the school. Um, and um, as I'm sure we're well aware of, um, plant-based is one of the biggest ways to support um, the climate. So uh, that's one of the angles that uh, it seems to be appealing to a lot of youth. Um, and then like you mentioned, sort of the health aspect of things and how plant-based diets are proven to reduce um, chronic diseases um, and improve heart health, et cetera. Um, that's been very appealing to a lot of the uh, faculty that we've been trying to get on, our, um, on board. Um, and a lot of um, people who might have um, health complications that we think could potentially be alleviated by trying to make um, some switches and seeing what happens. So are the faculty open to it? 
I think that a lot of them are and a lot of them aren't. Um, so there's a lot of previously, like I mentioned, ingrained um, beliefs that are very hard to um, change. So with a lot of faculty, we've seen support um, in, you know, being very receptive to ideas, helping us host events, um, kind of coming on board to speak. Um, but in, as far as actually practicing um, the ideals that we are talking about in their daily lives, that's something that we've seen amongst many faculty like Sparsha, but not amongst a lot of other faculty. Yeah, yeah. And, and let's hope that with your efforts, you know, that changes not just within the student body, but also, um, you know, with the faculty members. Um, Sparsha, if I may call upon you to share with us, uh, you know, more formally around the Plant Futures Initiative, this, the, where did it begin? You know, is Harvard at the center of it or, you know, did it um, start somewhere else? You know, something about co-founders. Uh, uh, I heard Camille mention Samantha Derrick. Mm -hmm. um, so tell us a little bit about you know, the origins of this project and and how how did Harvard come to know about it? How did yeah. Samantha reach out to you, you know, or any other way? So yeah, we um so so Samantha Derrick is a master's student for uh, was has her uh, master's from UC Berkeley and when she was doing that she realized that there was really not much at UC Berkeley to support her interests in her research and her um, activist interests around plant-based. Mm -hmm. um, and she met with Will, she met up with Will Rosenwig and, and eventually Nina Geiman uh, came on board, um, Gelman uh, came on board and um, they birthed um, Plant Futures Initiative. And so the, the, the idea behind Plant Futures Initiative is that they provide initial support and, and some resources to kind of create chapters in other universities. Okay. And the idea is that these are independent chapters that are kind of doing their own thing, um, but there's something, there's like a, there's a home that can support. And so when we were kind of first setting this up and I, I met um, Samantha, Sam, Sam because um, I invited her to, to come give a talk in my in my class, um, and uh, she came and and Camila and Naveen were were in that were in that class, and they they saw her, and I think it was really kind of like a joint the four of us just realizing oh okay we all really like each other and like what each other is about, <laughs> so maybe we can we can do this um, at at Harvard, and and I think yeah the first meetings were were me Naveen Camille Sam Brittany, and it just kind of like slowly slowly grew from that. Right. And I'm just going to bring up some interesting images, you know, so um, I, I noticed Samantha in the first to the to the top left. And so uh, Naveen and, and Camille, tell us what's going on in some of these pictures, you know, especially the top right and the bottom left. Yeah, for sure. Um, so on the top right, uh, that's an image of a recent event we had a film screening of the Eating Plants TV series. Uh, and actually, we had the filmmakers come and talk and we served um, all vegan food. Um, and so that's some of the food and some of the people who attended. Um, and that was co-hosted with the um, Animal Law and Policy Program, as well as the uh, Graduate School of Arts and Sciences Food Literacy Project. So lots of cross collaboration amongst different schools. Um, so that's very awesome to see people coming together. And yeah, again, on the bottom left, just a picture of people who had attended um, and the filmmakers are in that photo as well. All right, thank you for sharing that. Um, Naveen, did you wanna say something about that? Also? Oh yeah, no, I was just gonna add for um, the kind of, the pictures in the middle, um, yeah. the top middle one, I believe, was us at the Plant-Based World Expo um, mm -hmm. in New York City. And that was, I think, um, three weeks ago. Uh, and we had the opportunity to travel there um, and meet with a lot of different plant-based companies um, and to hear about their products and um, their stories and what they're doing in the plant-based world. Um, and that was really inspiring for us and, and to just really um, integrate ourselves into the community and hear from people. Um, and that it was an amazing experience. Um, and then the bottom middle one was, um, like Camille mentioned earlier, we went to the um, VegFest Boston just this past weekend with a group of people. And it was really cool for those people to be able to see um, just even within Boston alone, how much plant-based has grown and how many diverse options there really are now. 
Right. And I understand that there's a video of your time at the Plant-Based World Expo. I'll be sure to include that in the show notes. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, so our viewers can also watch it. Um, we have less than a minute left. And uh, Sparsha, I didn't want to, you know, let it, let you go without asking you a question that we'd plan to ask. <laughs> <laughs> and I know it's going to be a little bit fun. It's great to have Camille and join us for that, too, and, and hear about what might have been had you not been mm -hmm. teaching them at Harvard. Mm, what might have been? Well, in a way, I, I, I did try to still make it happen. After I defended my PhD, I went to L.A., and uh, part of my aim was to try to make it in the music business as a, as a singer, songwriter, producer. But if I were not a teacher and a researcher, I would I would definitely be singing songs in all of the local bars around Gloucester. That would be my uh, my my goal, my my life goal. And I still intend to do it after after retirement. <laughs> so. <laughs> Well, don't don't wait until retirement. We would love to hear, and maybe you can embed, you know, the, the critical method message of yeah. public health, planetary health, uh, veganism, animal rights, and yeah. the need to transform food systems in uh, our food systems in, in your, song. you know, yeah, in the song in your music. That and yeah, I'm pretty sure there's you know, tribe of musicians out there that will yeah. join you and help. Well, this is all that we have time for. Um, you know, Sparsha Saha, Camille Friedman, and Naveen Durbakula, thank you so much for joining uh, us on the show, Divinity, Connecting the Dots. It's been a pleasure talking to you and learning about your tireless efforts at Harvard University in making veganism a reality because plant-based is the future. Thank you Thank so you. much for your time. Thank you, Nevi, for having us. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you us. so much. Yeah. Thank you.